area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to Space Boffins, the 99th edition we've made in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. And I'd first of all like to know, did you make that number up? No. 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 no if <laughs> you look, this is the first I've heard no, of it. If you look on the podcast app, the last podcast was 98, which makes this one 99. Oh, should we, have, we should have a party then. Yeah, well, we need one. to add them up because there were some before the Naked. That's there were true, some yeah. pre So we've NS. actually passed our 100th podcast without knowing it. Yes, exactly. All right, <laughs> yes, so we better right. have a big yes, party. I only noticed today when okay. I was checking. All yeah. right, as yeah. you can hear, we're on the ball. But this time with three missions about to launch to Mars, we've got a red planet uh, special. We'll be hearing from the United Arab Emirates about their mission to Mars, talking to an engineer developing Europe's new Mars fetch rover, designed as part of a sample return mission and we'll be speaking to the executive director of the Mars Society about living on Mars. Our guest is Nicholas Booth, co-author of The Search for Life on Mars, which is subtitled uh, rather magnificently, The Greatest Scientific Detective Story Ever Told. Now, Nick, welcome. Uh, This is unprecedented, isn't it? Three missions. The US is about to launch its Perseverance rover and uh, Ingenuity helicopter. Uh, China's got its first orbiter and rover. There's also the United Arab Emirates Mars orbiter. Uh, Mars very much back on the agenda. And I guess uh, the big question at the heart of it really is, uh, is there life? That's absolutely right. This is the summer of Mars. Mars is in the right position for us to uh, launch missions from Earth to, towards it. So the first up is, as you say, the Hope mission, then the Chinese one, which is the, the translation, which I really do like, was Heavenly Mission, and um, then there's Perseverance. But yeah, it is the summer of Mars. And right back in the crosshairs again, after 40 years, people are talking about the question of life on Mars. Now... I'm old enough to have remembered the first successful landers, Viking, which was supposed to have found life, but didn't, and actually ended up between a rock and a hard place, because it couldn't confirm there was life, but it couldn't actually say there wasn't life. And I think the shock of that meant that for 20 years, Mars was a taboo, and gradually, more and more complicated missions have been going. And we're now, you know, this is the moment in The Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white to colour. This is, you know, this is great. This is full HD, full Pantechnican, uh, summer of Mars, and next February, when all these missions arrive, it will be the, you know, the next instalment of this, as we call it, scientific detective story. Now, you deal with this in the book, but um, give us a, a sort of summary of why confirming life on Mars has proved so elusive. It's a very, very good question. It is, the, in the case of the Perseverance rover, the $2.5 billion question. And the reason it's very difficult to answer that is because there's, a, if you like, a philosophical question at the heart of it, which is this. Is life on Mars going to be Earth-like? Is it going to be like terrestrial life, like terrestrial microbes? Or is it going to be, as one of the investigators told us, life as we don't know it? And that is the fundamental problem. If you assume that there was life on Mars that was like life here, one of the Viking instruments, 40 years ago, 
essentially tested positive, but all the other instruments didn't. So the consensus is it was just a chemical reaction. So if it's life as we don't know it, it stands to reason, you've got to come up with some fairly universal tests to try and work out what it is you're actually seeing. One of the great things about Perseverance is it's actually taking a sample of Mars back to the Red Planet. There was a piece of a meteorite that landed in Oman in 1999. They've still got samples here of it, and they're taking a piece of it. So when they're looking at what are the signals they're getting on Mars, they can compare it to a known sample. So that's something that's never been done before. And there's a series of sort of very, very clever, complicated scientific instruments that will narrow down this question. Now, will it actually find evidence of life? That Again, that's a real toughy one. I think what it will do, increasingly we're looking at what's happened on Mars billions of years ago and increasingly now there's evidence that there was water there that conditions were certainly conducive for life to have possibly formed so these next missions and next instruments will be looking to see okay can we narrow it down further I think the chances of them landing finding a DNA sample or something like that is very very remote but Stranger things have happened. So that brings us to the sort of signs of life that you're looking for, which, as you say, you know, it depends on what form of life there's going to be. I mean, there have been some tantalising findings from orbiters, uh, particularly in terms of, of methane, but it sort of hasn't really gone anywhere in terms of conclusive proof. I mean, is it best done from the ground or from an orbiter? Well, that's, again, is a good question. We've spoken to people. The methane question is a real sort of scientific whodunit because the mission that should have settled the question, the European Trace Gas Orbiter, not the most exciting name because it's looking at very, very small amounts of trace gases, hence the name, but it's not confirmed methane where it's been observed on the surface. So there's a sort of conundrum about methane. But there is a sizable minority i would say but a group of people we've spoken to have said look there's no point trying to take the kitchen sink to mars it's expensive it sometimes doesn't work just get your samples bring them back to our labs and that's the moment when we can have the full panoply of instruments to 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 look at what we think you know the to look for signs of life or to look certainly for the precursors of life or biosignatures but in terms of the the missions that are going now it's really Perseverance and one of its instruments that's called Sherlock, named after the fictional detective, which, and I've just suddenly realised the last time I talked to you guys was at an Austin Powers uh, movie premiere. So I am going to use laser and I probably will at some point use liquid hot magma. You, you can only do that if you use inverted commas yeah. with your, with your fingers at magma and yeah. laser. Yes. yes. Exactly. Sorry, I just thought I was getting a bit technical and a bit above my station because my school asked me not. <laughs> no, not, not late. Um, could I just yeah. um, pick, come back on on something you you talked about? I mean, first of all, we we are going to have a bit more about the fetch rover, so this part of this sample return uh, mission a bit later in the podcast, but. Uh, do you have a conclusion? I mean, you talk about, you know, sample return. We need to get a definitive answer. The only way is to bring something back. What's your view about whether Viking actually found life on Mars? It's an interest, a very, very interesting question. One of the things that with Viking that never really made the press at the time was just how many factions and rivalries there were within the 
scientific community, particularly the biological community. Now, that's not just me saying that as a journalist. I spoke to all the Viking guys over the years, and, you know, they said, yeah, the personal relationships were not great. People didn't sort of collaborate. And what was also interesting was they were already big names. There were one or two Nobel laureates. There were people who were at the end of their careers, big names. They looked for life on Mars. One experiment essentially tested positive, the others didn't. But the big sort of downer was that no organics were found on Mars. No organics, then you don't have the biochemical backbone. So that happened with Viking, that it was a sort of psychological shock for people, that you can't have life without organic material. 20 years later, as we were reporting all at the same time, there was the organics were found in uh, meteorites that come from Mars, and then there was the business with that meteorite in 1996, which people oh, still Alan Hills over now. One. The Alan Hills one. But the significance is that organics have been found in meteorites that have come from Mars, and Curiosity has already found you know, ancient organics. It's trapped in ancient sandbeds on the surface. There's now a certain amount of evidence which is still controversial, um, about whether there could have been an ocean or several small oceans that possibly were transitory that could have frozen over but would have been warm enough underneath to have allowed something like hydrothermal activity. And that is really one of the questions that's going to be answered by some of these new missions because they're going to get a better handle on, OK, we, we can land and have a look at the sort of chemical reactions that you would expect if water had been there for any length of time life is, is say right bang in the, the center of the, the crosshairs for these missions well if you want to uh, gem up on uh, mars and the search for life uh, for mars before all these missions land uh, the search for life on mars the greatest scientific detective story ever told by nicholas booth and elizabeth howell is available in the u.s now by arcade publishing and it also is available on ebook Nick, thanks for now. We'll come back to you uh, later in the podcast. The first mission due to launch to Mars this summer is called Amal, or Hope, which uh, made me think of George Clooney's rather brilliant wife. I thought, ah, now I know what that word, beautiful name means. Um, the UAE orbiter will blast off from a remote Japanese island on its seven-month journey. Once at Mars, it'll make measurements of the planet's atmosphere, including its dust and ozone. And the mission is partnered with three US universities on its sensors. Now, the United Arab Emirates or UAE's ambitions don't end there either, as it also plans to build a Mars city in Dubai. And when I was in Dubai last year, I got a guided tour of their space agency and a hint of what lay ahead. I'm Salem Humaid uh, Al-Mari, the Assistant DG for Science and Technology at the Mohammed Barashid Space Center. Looking at the UAE, in terms of space as well, we're a very small nation. And for us, we cannot achieve anything without collaboration. Our program started on fundamentals of collaboration with South Korea, knowledge transfer and technology transfer. Uh, we're cooperating with the academic entities in the United States on our Mars probe. Uh, and we're also collaborating with Russia, US, ESA on our uh, astronaut program. So everything we do is about collaboration, but we're always looking for these areas where we can add on to what the others are doing. So there's a lot of things that we can do that are unique. 
And uh, some of the money that we are investing in space can also contribute to the global picture of where humans are going uh, in the future in space. The UAE has uh, what we call the Mars 2117 strategy. So a strategy of in 100 years, we would like to have a presence on Mars or at least be a contributor to having human presence on Mars. Uh, obviously, the reason that's a 100-year strategy is because, first of all, it's very hard. It's very expensive. And right now, it might not be feasible, but it might be feasible in 100 years. So what we look at is whatever we can do around the moon uh, in the next 20 or 30 years will facilitate getting to Mars and getting there safely. So sending humans on a nine-month or eight-month duration mission to Mars with all that radiation uh, might not be the safest thing to do now, but we need to start studying that. And we're planning on developing what we call the Mars Science City here in Dubai, just across the road. Uh, and this will be an, uh, uh, basically a, a very large uh, structure that would simulate conditions on Mars where we can co uh, collaborate with international space agencies on uh, certain mission profiles, for example, like sample return. And, and putting uh, astronauts in an analog environment very similar to Mars and seeing how that could stress them out and what are the, uh, let's say, the pros and cons of such a mission or that mission profile. So we plan to contribute to getting humans on Mars here on the ground and also hopefully in the future when we go to missions to the moon and beyond. And when will this sort of Mars analogue thing, when will that be built and up and running? We're planning to start construction this year and we expect it to be the first phase to be up and running in the next two years. So now we'll go to uh, our next destination, which is uh, what we call the Passive House. The idea behind this house was that uh, this is basically the first off-the-grid home that's, that's been built in the UAE of, of this style. And the, uh, the objective here was that we can definitely have uh, a house in the UAE that can be cooled to the levels that we need in the summer using only solar power. So, and, and the technologies that are used here is that the walls are very thick, the insulation is very... Uh, good to you know keep the heat out, keep the cool in, uh, and this house has been now operational since August of 2016, and has never required external energy, oh. and it actually gives back to the grid. Oh, and a lot of people ask, why is the space? Uh, go ahead. Why is the space program building this? So this kind of leads very nicely into what we're trying to do with our Mars Science City project. Uh, so yes, that Mars Science City project will have analogs but it will also have uh, research focused on three key areas uh, that are water, food, and energy. And these three key areas are uh, obviously what you'd need to live on Mars, but they're also very important for here on the ground. Uh, so uh, they're national challenges for the UAE. And this house here is, is focusing on the energy aspect. So you can build something in our climate that, and that can keep a house of this size cool. Uh, the next aspects would be related to water and then also food. Salim Humaid Al-Marie from the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Centre in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Architectural plans for Mars City uh, somewhat resemble a huge transparent geodesic dome in the desert with trees and buildings inside, which looks remarkably similar to Biosphere 2, an American experiment built in the Arizona desert. And in September 1991, four men and four women were sealed inside this closed ecosystem for two years to simulate living on another planet. The experiment didn't go entirely to plan. Well, the story's the subject of a new documentary film called Spaceship Earth. If we're going to build the first human-designed biospheric system, we're going to make it beautiful. 
We're going to put in mini rainforest, a desert, the savanna. Be an ocean with a living coral reef. It would be populated by hundreds of carefully selected plants and animal species, including eight people. We called the project Biosphere Two because we wanted people to say, "Well, where's Biosphere One?" Biosphere One is the Earth. Spaceship Earth was released in the US in May. It's just been released in the UK, and it gives a real insight into the challenges facing any future planetary colonists.、Uh, I have to say, it is. Yeah, we got a, a, a we nice got a preview. preview. We, we've seen the preview, and it's great. It's I mean, really great. great. And funnily enough, the best thing is not the twist at the end, which we won't we won't share with you.、Uh, it is the stuff leading up to Biosphere and these extraordinary people. This extraordinary group of people. Who did amazing things? They built this sort of commune, but it was a commercial commune, and they also built a ship. And I was thinking, how do we、and、not, not know this? Not a spaceship, by the no, way, an ship. actual ship, ship. On, that would <laughs> that launched. <laughs> they launched、water. it. They launched it in Oakland,、yeah. California, and they took it out under the Golden Gate Bridge, and they sailed off around the world in this thing. I mean, they did extraordinary things. These people. I think what for me,、uh, I know we both obviously we watched it at the same time, and what makes it as well is all this footage. They effectively documented their lives together with really good quality for the time film footage. So it's it's like time traveling back. To sort of the late six, well, I think sort of seventies. It feels like the late sixties actually. It was all the seventies, yeah. It, although it's the seventies, you've got that. It's got that mamas and papas California vibe in terms of the way they are dancing, because a lot of them are into interpretive art and and theatre as well as ecology and sustainability. So one minute they will be talking about how do you you know grow plants in a specific way that will sustain them. Through the trip, and then the next minute they've got paint smeared all over their faces, and they're sort of waving their arms in the, in the air, much like we we do with the yeah, Space Boffins podcast. Yeah, that's, so that's that's right. that's, that is the way we,、uh, we record it. But you're seeing all that, so it's、um, and it's a lifestyle that seems so far away from today. But they weren't hippies, although they look like a bunch of no, hippies. It was a very much commercial very, operation. Yeah, yeah. they, they said, and they say themselves, no, we're capitalists, and they opened up businesses across across the world to sustain. This ideal, and it was I. I mean, that's it. it was、uh, they were idealistic. Yeah, and I don't think you. And they had a fault, vision. You can't fault the people. You know, I think it got. For, I mean, what's extraordinary about this? And I found this researching pieces I write or or the various programs we do. There is a gap on in the archive, really, between in the eighties and nineties.、So、this all happened. The biosphere two was nineteen ninety one, and there's not much on the internet. There's not much out there. It was on the TV and things at the time, but not much. And I don't remember it at the time. I I do remember reading about it somewhere, or maybe I saw it on a TV report. But that was sort of it. Yeah. That, so it's that, not. That there's really、it. not that much. Yeah. Much out there, and what there is is quite、Often、a lot of misinformation、detail. about it. Yeah. Um. 
which is you know and the, and the things you think are the baddies in it the people you think are the baddies in it are not don't turn out to no, be no and it also as well it, it's the size of this biosphere i think i had in my mind that it was the size of a huge leisure center or sports hall a geodesic dome i just sort of think that but if now anyone who's listened to this podcast for a while will know I'm a massive Battlestar Galactica pa- uh, fan. There was one of the ships escaping Earth that sadly got destroyed where this little girl sat in a sort of biosphere part of the ship, which was all beautiful plants and trees and water fountains. That's sort of what it was like. It was huge. It wasn't just one building. It was Loads. Well, it, it was I huge. Think, I mean, they did have some extracts in in the film from the uh, movie Silent Running, which is very much of its time. But that was a sort of, I think, early seventies sort of um, utopian science fiction, <gasps> which had these big biospheres. So, I mean, actually, Battlestar Galactica owes it to that, really, yeah, because they, yeah, the Battlestar Galactica ones were very similar to yeah. the Silent Running one. Silent Running, I, I rewatched recently. It, it's worth watching because there's a lot of sci-fi tropes in there, a lot of ideas in there, but it's very, very much of its... Of its sort time. of late 60s, early mm. 70s sort of time. But Spaceship Earth, fantastic film. Yeah, we can't recommend that enough. And it was a... It was a pleasant surprise because we didn't just, as you can tell, we didn't just like it. We loved it. So if you get a chance to see that safely, take a mask. Oh, no, it's pretty much everywhere. It. It's pretty much everywhere online. You can, oh, you have great. to pay for it, but it's pretty much on. Oh, well, much, that's even on, better. Socially distanced, you can actually watch it. It's on Amazon, it it's on fine. Virgin, it's on all, yeah. it's pretty much all the platforms. Absolutely uh, you, you worth can, it. You can buy it. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find us all over social media like a rash and get in touch with us via email info at buffymedia.co.uk. What a lovely thought. Mm. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. That was NASA's Curiosity rover making its dramatic landing on Mars. It's now notched up 23 kilometres on the clock and it's still going strong. Well, its successor, Perseverance, will launch this summer and the rover looks remarkably similar to Curiosity. This time, though, it has a helicopter, which is just great. And uh, it will also collect samples and leave them on Mars in tubes. Now, they're going to be collected by a sample fetch rover. And that's being developed in the UK by a team at Airbus in Stevenage. The town's become something of a centre of expertise for rovers in Europe. They constructed the European Space Agency's ExoMars rover, which is now due to launch in 2022. Well, ESA's Fetch rover is the first part of a system to return samples of Martian soil to Earth. And we've been chatting to one of the engineers working on the project, Alistair Wayman, and we asked him why the new rover has only four wheels. So there's a couple of differences that we've got from previous Mars missions. One of them is that we know exactly where we're going before we go there, which is quite unusual with um, rover missions. Usually we make them so that they can go to quite a wide range of places and then the scientists can decide where the best place that they'd like to send the rover is. In this instance, 
we know where we're going. We're going where Mars 2020 is going and where it's going to acquire the samples. So that means that we could target the design very specifically to the area that we're going to and then balance off some of the requirements in terms of the terrain that we need to drive over against the other requirements that we have in terms of how easily we can fit within the the lander during the entry, descent and landing phase, the mass requirements and things like that. That's the kind of things that drove us towards a a four-wheel architecture, which, like you say, is something that no Mars rovers used before. In terms of how it does this, I mean, is it completely autonomous? Is it going to be like a little robot scurrying around from from vial to vial, if you like, to collect these things that that are scattered around the surface? So the aim is that it will be able to do everything autonomously. Obviously, we will still check in on it every day that we can do every other day we'll we'll make sure that everything's going right and we still fully expect that there's going to be some really challenging areas of either the drive to the tubes that we're going to collect or actually picking them up themselves that will require some involvement from the ground but a large portion of the mission is going to be done completely autonomously by SFR itself which is really important because we we don't have a huge amount of time on the surface so in order to be able to to capture all these samples and get them back to where we need to in the time achieving that autonomy is really important. When I first read about it I just envisage one of those grappling hooks that you get in fairgrounds where you're um, trying to pick up and they do look like sort of metallic cylindrical like cigar holders which, if you've ever tried those grappling hooks, anything shaped like that would be an absolute nightmare to pick up correctly. How are you actually going to pick those things up? Because I say they're not the easiest of shapes. It's one of the one of the biggest challenges of the mission, certainly being able to do this um, autonomously and have SFR do it by itself. But we're putting in a, a lot of effort to developing those systems. We're going to have a, a robotic arm on the front of the rover. There'll be a set of cameras that can identify where the tubes are and how they're lying on the surface. From there, the robotic arm will reach out and it'll have a specific gripper on the end of it that's designed very carefully to be able to capture these these samples, to be able to pick them up. One of the advantages is that we know exactly what they look like so we can tailor the design specifically um, to match that. So you've got this rover, it scurries around pretty much autonomously. It picks up these vials and takes them to what a, a some sort of launch vehicle so it's also got to not just pick them up it's also got to drop them off somewhere so it this material can get back to earth on the lander that we that we land on there's kind of three payloads in inverted commas on there there's us the the sample fetch rover there's also the mars ascent vehicle which is the the rocket that's going to launch it back into the martian atmosphere and then there's also uh, what's called the sample transfer arm so that's another system that sfr will approach the lander and stop within about a meter of it and then this sample transfer arm is what will actually reach out grab the the samples from sample fetch rover and then transfer them into the Mars Ascent vehicle so that then it can be launched off. It sounds incredibly complex. Um, You've got all these things to fit into place because then when you get into orbit, you've got to capture those samples. And and I believe the rover, fetch rover, will be filming the launch of the samples from the surface of Mars, which is a first. 
Yeah, that's going to be a, a really exciting phase of the mission as, as well. We'll have a, a dedicated camera on the rover. So once we've transferred those samples, like you say, we'll, we'll retreat to a safe distance and then we'll be able to film the, the Mars Ascent vehicle launching from the lander platform and then reaching into space. It'll be a, a really exciting piece of film that we'll be able to send back video of the, of the first samples from, from another planet coming back to Earth. Now, you're at the development design stage at the moment. What point can you move back into that shiny rover construction chamber you've got in uh, in Stevenage and actually start putting hardware together and figuring it out? In a few years' time, but it's going to come around quickly. The launch date for the sample return lander with um, sample fetch rover on it is in 2026. So it's in terms of spacecraft development, it's not long from now. So it's only going to be a few years until we start getting the first pieces of the flight hardware in and start building the, the full rover itself. How hard is this? Well, I wanted to ask how you're going to capture it as well. I want to hear how you actually capture it in orbit. It, in terms of its complexity and challenge, it, it's it's kind of unprecedented. There's so many different elements that all have to work together and cooperate autonomously in such huge distances from Earth. They can't use ground involvement. Humans can't be directing what's going on here. So it's very much a, a, a huge challenge. But for the samples, once they're in orbit, there'll be cameras on board uh, the Earth Return Orbiter, and it will look for, for these samples in this essentially small uh, metal sphere. So it'll try and identify that from several kilometres away with, with its cameras, and then gradually reduce the distance between them, and then get to the point where it has a, a, a capture mechanism so that it can kind of almost swallow it up and then contain it and then get it in a, in a controlled state. Uh, are you at the stage where you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat thinking, <laughs> how on earth are we going to do this? I, I think we're, we're, there are certainly difficulties that we that we face in in developing this, but I think we've we've worked through a lot of the the big ones, and we've got a lot of confidence now in in what we're doing and that it's feasible. That doesn't mean that we haven't still got engineering work to go. We're still six years from launch, but we've got confidence that we can meet all those significant challenges. Alistair Wayman, a systems engineer at Airbus Defence and Space in the UK. And thanks very much to the UK Space Agency for supporting the Space Boffins podcast. So what about sending people to Mars? It's a goal the Mars Society, led by Robert Zubrin, has been advocating for more than 20 years. Lucinda Offer is the organisation's executive director. I asked her which of this summer's missions she was most excited about. China puts my hairs on end, uh, the mission that they have planned. It's so amazing because, well, I suppose they want to catch up with the rest of the world because they're going for a, a trifecta of missions here. Um, they're going to launch uh, an orbiter, a lander that's then going to deploy a rover. So quite ambitious from China. And I'm hoping the collaboration among them and all the data that we get back can just push humans to Mars even faster. So how does that work? How do you go from these little rovers, and we've been sending landers since, what, the 1970s, how do you go from that to a pathway, if you like, to humans on Mars? In 2004, we had Stephen Squires. Um, he's the PI for Spirit and Opportunity that was sent to Mars back then. And um, he said at our conference that the rovers are paving a, a path for humans and humans will follow the rovers. And that was his whole purpose for what he was doing with the with robotic technology on Mars is 
you know, they're there to find out, is it possible for humans to live there? They're taking samples of the radiation levels on the surface of Mars, you know, the temperatures on the surface of Mars, what are, how, how effective are, are the dust storms going to be for humans? So those rovers are actually um, getting important data uh, for us to see, you know, what will be possible. And I think what we're learning is that absolutely it's possible. I'm really excited, especially with the discovery of, of liquid water um, underground. I think that's something that scientists have known for quite a while, but it took NASA a long time to get enough evidence to actually publicize it and say, yes, we have, there is water on Mars. What's your motivation for, for wanting to go to Mars, though? I mean, it is a, a barren, dusty wasteland. Uh, <laughs> you possibly, with all this dust, can't even see the stars at night. I mean, it, it just seems an extraordinary place to want to go to and want to stay. Well, humans are perpetually nomadic, adventurous explorers. But also, you know, we want to continue to serve, to live, to survive and to thrive humans, you know, we've evolved on this planet. We are incredibly intelligent. I, I, I know people will be disappointed if we're the only intelligent life forms out there. But we have the capabilities, we have the ambitions, we have the technology. We've had it since the Apollo missions. Um, we just have to say yes and go do it. And now talking about humans to Mars isn't something that's laughable. It's actually very, very serious and, and very, very possible for a very near future. Not something that we have to wait decades for anymore. It's something that after the moon missions, we were planning on going to Mars eight years later. And so that's why the Mars Society advocates for humans to Mars in a decade. And I think that's what Elon Musk is doing as well. And I wanted to ask about Elon Musk. Has that changed things? You know, now we've got someone that's clearly, you know, showed what he can do in space. Has that accelerated, if you like, the timeline for getting humans to Mars? You know, he's proving what humanity can do when we put our mind to it, basically, because he's not doing it alone. He's He's got NASA backing him, and he's got a lot of incredibly intelligent you know, engineers and scientists from NASA who are working with him or who may have actually you know, moved positions from NASA over to SpaceX because it's difficult in these large government-run organizations. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of projects to, to fund. And so what the best thing about SpaceX is there's only this one mission, and that's Humans to Mars, and that's what they're focused on, um, and that's what they put all their time and effort into. So how would it work? Are we still thinking about having at least initially some sort of one-way trip to, to take humans to Mars to establish a base and then keep resupplying them? Or do you need the technology to be able to get people onto Mars and back off Mars again? Well, absolutely. NASA would never do a mission where it wasn't safe, obviously, number one, but also where you couldn't have a return mission, where you couldn't bring people back to Earth if they chose to. The one-way mission idea was something that Mars Society never advocated. Even Mars Direct Plan has a Mars Ascent vehicle and an Earth Return vehicle built into it. So, um, uh, yeah, it would it would be where we would want to work between the two planets and, and help them both to thrive. And this isn't just all about humans leaving Earth to make another life on another planet. It is that, but it's also the technology that needs to be created for that is, you know, going to be a huge challenge. Uh, and, but that's kind of what the young people want. It, is the, what's the next big challenge that we could help you to forward humanity? Always, 
when we rise up to those challenges, there's always a benefit for Earth. And do you envisage taking, you know, Earth society to Mars or trying to look at what, look, how can we do this better? How can we be better humans on Mars than clearly we have been on Earth? That's the hope. (laughs) Absolutely. Being part of the Mars Society since 2002, and I've been their executive director since 2009, I have had the privilege of attending a lot of conferences with them. And uh, the discussion is always around politics, religion, government, uh, autonomy. I mean, all of those discussions that and things that exist for humans on Earth will exist for humans on Mars. And you're right, it's going to be sort of like a, a blank slate. What do we want to create there? We absolutely have an opportunity to create something completely different uh, than how things are here on Earth. And are we going to do it right? Um, who's going who's gonna to make sure it's all done? What is the right way? Oh, my goodness. There's so many open questions that we don't all have the answers to. But that's also the wonderful part about being human is that everybody has ideas. And having crews of six come out to our habitats in Utah or in the Arctic is kind of like a small experiment in that because sometimes... There are people who come together from different parts of the world with different cultures, different ideas and thoughts and uh, different upbringings and environments. And they all then have to come into an eight meter diameter um, hab that's only like two and a half stories tall and live together for two weeks, sometimes longer. We've had one uh, month long, four month long pre-rotations. Sometimes people you know, leave the hab as friends forever and they are always in contact and sometimes they don't group dynamics and how humans get along is such an important part. And I think that any group that first goes to Mars, they're going to have to be people who spend a lot of time together on Earth to make sure that they get along and that they work together and that they have each other's backs. And that would be a a really successful crew that heads to Mars. Lucinda Offer from the Mars Society. And she's also, by the way, the Education and Outreach Officer for the Royal Astronomical Society. I should at this point mention the Royal Astronomical Society's super massive podcast. If you're a fan of Space Boffins, you will love the super massive podcast. Well, before we finish, let's return to our guest, Nicholas Booth, co-author of the new book, Search for Life on Mars. Um, Nick, we all know now that uh, getting to Mars is is far from easy. And I like this uh, sentence that you'd written. Technical failure remains the unspoken elephant in the clean room. The odds have not exactly been stacked in favour of either Russia or Europe when it comes to Mars. Can I just pick up on the idea of an elephant in the clean I know, room? I just love the idea of an elephant in the clean room. That's a, yes, that's, that's, um, that's can like, I point out, I didn't, I didn't actually write that. I had oh, a team of script writers who feed me lines. So I've, I've they, picked they the best the bit. I've, I've pissed, picked you one of the bits I really yeah. liked, and that was Elizabeth's line, was it? <laughs> Yes, it was. Do you know, seriously, I don't know. We looked at the book, we worked on it because, you know, I'm old and forgetful and most of my glory days of reporting are way past me. I wanted somebody young who knew what they were talking about (laughs) and Elizabeth has... The energy and the ability, and we write. We've written stuff, and I'd say, "Can you write this bit?" And she'd write. And I'm now looking at the finished. Pro- and I have no idea who wrote it. I can't tell you who who wrote it. Oh, so so, so there was a possibility then that you could have written that, but whether you wrote it yes. or not, um, why do you? It's in the It's a good line. Yeah. It's in the if book. The lawyers. If the lawyers are listening, it wasn't me. Okay, yeah. uh, you know, Russia. Why do you think it is that Russia and Europe have had so many? 
failures. I mean, America's had them too, of course. But um, I mean, maybe it's just a question of, of, of numbers. But it, we all know it's not easy. But what, why do you think it's proving difficult, particularly with um, for ESA, obviously, with the Schiaparelli um, didn't land and they've had to delay ExoMars? It's tough to land on Mars. It's not easy. You cannot model what the atmosphere is going to be like ahead of time because the Martian atmosphere is very thin and at the surface of Mars the pressure is is akin to 100,000 feet here. Now, you can model the Earth's atmosphere quite easily, but with Mars it's freezing cold, it's mainly carbon dioxide, and it has these very odd properties, thermal properties, that it sort of balloons outwards and, and, and... contract really quite quickly this has been measured on the surface by pressure sensors so when you're coming in you've got to make sure that you know you, you know where you're going to hit the atmosphere to pop open the pop open the parachutes it's tough to do it i mean the the famous explanation was said as a joke in the 60s by a jpl project manager he came up with the idea of the great galactic ghoul and it seems to feast on Russian, or certainly in those days, on Soviet spacecraft. But they, you know, NASA have been very, very lucky. They've missed bullets several times. You know, Mariner 7, famously, the battery exploded just the day after the encounter. It's unfortunate for Europe and, and, and ESA that it's had the problems to date. I just think it's the roll of the dice. I, it's, you know, it's tough to do, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Okay, so we talked about life on Mars. What about living on Mars? What What's your view of this? I mean, it's something, as, as we've said, the Mars Society has been talking about for the last 20 or so years. Elon Musk is very keen to get to Mars. Is it even feasible in the next, I don't know, 20, 30 years? I think it is. And there's also something else which has happened, which, again, um, my illustrious career, I started out as a humble researcher, on a book for ITN of all places on a book about Mars and it start we did the research in 1987 and I went to Boulder in Colorado because there was the case for Mars 3 which was a conference where as they used to joke they'd been the Mars underground the people who were pushing to do more Mars stuff and every day I'd got a cab to the university and asked the cab, cab drivers and say you know do you think we should send humans to Mars and in those days it was running 70% against. My most recent visit to London, I did the same asking London cabbie drivers, who are a different, you know, t- talking of alien species. Um, I asked them and said, yeah, do you think we should go to Mars? And overwhelmingly, the reaction was, yeah, and I think, yeah, I think we'll be able to do it and it won't bankrupt countries. So I think, if you like, sort of philosophically, the average person in the street... Uh, now is thinking, okay, it's a good idea, let's do it. And what's happened in recent years? Well, there's two things. The the cost of missions are getting you know, lower and lower. Um, in the 90s, NASA's budget was literally lopped by into a tenth of what it had been before, and that was why its return to Mars was, you know, a sort of low-cost endeavour with the Mars Pathfinder. And there's now the mini satellites or sort of cubesats that are you know you can get exactly the same amount of instruments in smaller space so you reduce your budget you can put stuff into smaller spaces the big the remaining question is will humans survive the journey to mars and i still think the journey's out on that one but in answer to your question yes i think within the next 20 to 30 years human beings will go to mars 
watch this space then. Nick, thanks for uh, again for joining us. Uh, thanks also to the UK Space Agency for continuing to support the Space Boffins podcast. Next time we'll be back with space stamps. That's right, isn't it? Space well, stamps? I think mission patches, okay. space mission patches, and hopefully something on stamps if I can find and the that, right person. That'll be our hundredth edition. On our hundredth. That's so nerdy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a look forward to. Uh, by the way, if you've got a mission to Mars this summer, uh, best of luck. Thanks for listening. WebEx ist mit Cisco Security ausgestattet, so dass Ihre Videokonferenzen immer vertraulich sind. Kostenlos testen unter cisco.de/workfromhome. Wenn Arbeiten von zu Hause sicher sein soll, ist WebEx unerlässlich.